Marriage. Marriage. From the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, the first real miracle that took place was when God gave us marriage. The vows are there, leave, cleave, naked, one flesh, no shame. So the Bible begins with marriage. The Bible ends in Revelation with marriage. We graduate and go to heaven and be with the Lord. There is a marriage feast of the Lamb, a banquet that takes place because the church, you and I, all of us, are the bride of Christ, and he is the bridegroom, and therefore there will be a marriage celebration when we graduate and go to be with the Lord. So the Bible has a parentheses of marriage on both sides of it. And right in the middle, Jesus performed the first miracle when? Marriage feast, Cana of Galilee. And all the way through the scripture, we have Bible used, all the way through the Bible, we have marriage used as the best metaphor of what it is to know God through Jesus Christ. In this relationship we have vertically, this is the best illustration we have for what happens horizontally is marriage. Marriage is the most important and vital and significant human relationship, period. No debate. Bottom line, marriage. So therefore, we've been dealing with relationships, and we have, at the beginning, a study of marriage. And so this particular weekend, we're going to have a chance for every person who would like to, who is married, to recommit yourself to the vows that you have made. You say, well, what about singles? Singles need to understand the beauty and the miracle of marriage. If you're widowed, if you're divorced, if you never married, how important it is when this is the figure that is used to help us understand the relationship we have with God, the best physical understanding is marriage. It is a sacred, holy gift. Now, let me confess something. When I first uttered those marriage vows, I'll tell you something, I didn't really follow through, I didn't really comprehend, I didn't know the depth of those vows. Somehow I had forgotten or did not know that a vow is different from a promise. A vow is something we make to God not in any other reference. A vow is to God, and a promise or a contract or a resolution is different than a vow. And therefore, when you and I, if you've ever been married or you are married, when you uttered those vows, they were to God as well as to your wife or your husband. Whoa. 
Now, when I got married, I knew I was legally married. I entered into a contract of the state, but I had no idea that that emotion that I felt of love and that chemistry that I felt, which I could not separate from that emotion. Do you understand what I'm saying? Did you listen? Yeah. But a vow, a vow. And then as I studied these vows with a new depth of understanding that I prayed God would give to you and me, I find where did they come from? They began in the garden, they've evolved through time. And finally, the Archbishop of Canterbury had, had put down those classical vows you found in the common book of prayer, and they've evolved. And some people get married, they write their own vows, but there are a, a basic overlook of vows that most of us have repeated after the person who married us. So therefore, I thought it's a good time for us to restate those vows, to now with new understanding. I will tell you something. Last night, we have worship most any time, as you know, around here. And as I went out, I happened to be standing over here, and a couple came out. And they're, they're just bright and smiling. And she said she would not repeat these vows. Now, they're married. And I looked at her. And she was smiling. I said, you know, why not? She said, I just now begin to understand what I've done. <laughs> and I said, you're honest. You're an honest person. And so maybe that will be some of you because they are far, far reaching. Now, also to my surprise, as I studied these vows with new eyes, I realized that of all people, Elvis Presley, Elvis Presley, in the song that was the theme of his life, really, encompass these vows that are expressed biblically and have been retreated by people through the years, and I would never have dreamed of this. You remember TLC was that Elvis gave out, he gave out rings and bracelets and had on one of his many outfits that he wore, a TLC, tender loving care. But in the classic song, that he sang over and over again, believe it or not, it encompasses the biblical view of marriage and the vows that are taken in marriage. Love me tender, love me true, never let me go. You have made my life complete, and I love you so. Love me tender. You see, it's all there. For example, you take the word tender, and it can easily be the word cherish. Oh, big word. And love is there, and truth is there. So when you think about the biblical context in which our vows are built, it's all there in a secular song. So the secular world comes down and defines it. The biblical world defines it. And we repeat those vows when we get married. So we're going to see that when we get married, first of all, there is a 
vow to truth. And then we'll see there is a vow to love and there is a vow to cherish. Remember now, the word vow has a divine connotation. So when marriage takes place, it is a supernatural thing. It has the vertical dimension and the horizontal dimension. So we talk about a, a vow to truth. And you see it in, in, in the thing. I, your name, I, Edwin, take thee, Lisa, to be my wedded wife and to have and to hold from this day forward. Did you see the word to have? Do you see the word to hold? Oh, you know, I just, you know, those are. To have means to possess. To hold means to endure. So what happens we, when we get married, we are actually fulfilling what the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, chapter 4, which he says, hey, wives, you don't own yourselves. You don't own your body. Husbands, guess what? You don't own your body. When you get married, the other person owns you. Whoa, that's a big thing. There has to be a lot of trust there, doesn't it? A lot of trust. And then he says, to have and to hold. Have means to totally own, to totally possess. You say, now, wait a minute. Yep, that's it. No wonder that lady didn't want to repeat this last night. <laughs> she got it. And to hold, you can hold someone up. You can hold and push them down. You can lead them out. You can pull them back. And that is all in the hands of the wife and the hands of the husband. Well, I don't know. Oh, yes, this is biblical marriage, ladies and gentlemen, to have and to hold. And therefore, this is the very foundation of marriage because that is a total reliability and a dependence on that person that you said, I do and I will to, as well as Almighty God who is built in those vows. To have and to hold from this day forward, that sounds like forever to me. I don't know about you. And that is the foundation of truth. Truth is all in and through marriage. Truth comes out. And we discover that when we're married, we wake up sometime and say, oh, I didn't know he was so prideful. I didn't see that. Oh, I didn't know she was so vengeful. I didn't see that. I didn't know that he was so unforgiving. I didn't know that she pouted. I'd, and all of this and all in between, the little bitty things that we saw when we were dating or talking about getting married, now they're put on steroids. Those little things become gigantic things. And you wake up and say, I've married a stranger. In the morning, you look over there and there's gorilla breath. And the hair looks like it's been, you put your finger in a socket or something. Ah! And he gets up and puts on those old dirty sweats and he goes to the bathroom and, and makes noises you never heard before. 
You see, there's no place to hide in marriage. The truth comes out. It is seen in this most intimate relationship. It is all there, and it's startling to some people. Man, you mean I've given myself to having to hold to, to her, to him? But it's based on truth. Soren Kierkegaard, the philosopher, talk about marriage. He said, it's like that when you get married, you've gone to a costume ball, and you're totally masked. Can you identify with mask? You're totally masked and you have a complete different costume, nobody can possibly recognize who you are, and, and you dance, and you eat, and you have activities and celebration, and it's a wonderful time till midnight, i.e. the story of Cinderella, we would say, and you take off the mask, whoa, and everybody knows who you are. You're identified. Kierkegaard, that's exactly what happens in marriage, isn't it? Everybody here can, oh, yeah, isn't it? To have and to hold, can I hold her a little less? Can I have her, you know, have him? Till death do us part. Say, so, well, let me tell you about marriage. It's like a bridge. You, you take a bridge, it looks steady and strong, it's painted, and it, it looks great. But you take an 18-wheeler and put it over that bridge, what happens? The stress of the 18-wheeler reveals all the flaws, and, and they begin to come out, and they begin to display themselves. Now, did the Mack truck or the 18-wheeler cause those flaws? No. That Mack truck just revealed those flaws that were already in the bridge. That's what marriage does, folks. It reveals who we are, there, there's an openness, there's a, there's a revelation of truth. Marriage, based on truth. So we make a vow to truth. And all of a sudden, that person knows more about you than your mom or dad, your brother, your sister, your best friend. It's all there. 24-7. It's the most important relationship, the most sacred relationship, not parents and children or children and parents or brother and sister or friends. It is marriage where there's no place to hide. There's no place to run. And therefore, marriage always needs to be have an open door policy. There should never be any locked doors in marriage, never. So in marriage, you have to, well, I call it the, the beautiful triplet. In marriage, you have to talk, 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 listen, 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 and pray, pray, pray. Otherwise, you're going to stay there. Well, our marriage is okay. There's a lot of okay marriages, and that is a tremendous tragedy, ladies and gentlemen. Well, we're okay. We're doing all right. You know, she sort of does her thing. This is a terrible, terrible thing. And really, it's a marriage in form and not in magnificent reality. Talk, talk, talk. Listen, listen, listen. And particularly, let me say a word to the guys. I've said this many, many times, but somehow I forget it. 
Gentlemen, we're not good listeners. And when your wife comes to you with a problem, listen, 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 but do not try to solve the problem. That's something men don't understand. They come with a problem. Well, let me tell you, you need to do this and stop doing this and go there. Oh, no, 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 guys, listen to me. When they come with a problem, merely restate the problem to them. Well, you say you're having a problem with that friend who sort of betrayed you. You know, restate the problem. Don't try to solve it. Gentlemen, trust me. You try to solve it, all of a sudden you're in the middle of it. So in marriage, you listen, listen, listen. You talk, 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 and you pray, pray, pray. And all of a sudden, a marriage is just okay. And a lot of marriages are just okay. I've read a lot of surveys about marriage. And the one that seems to be overwhelmingly true is that about 62 or 63% of married people say in confidence, if I had to do over, I would marry him or her again. About 60%. And only about, you know, 5 to 8% marriages say, our marriage is fabulous. Only about 5 or 8%. So something's wrong with all of this. I think it's the fact we don't understand the vows. We don't understand the sacredness of it. And first of all, there is a vow to truth, to truth. And the next part of our vow, there is a vow to love. We're going to be dealing with love in weeks and weeks and weeks to come, and I will not exhaust that most vital, pregnant, meaningful word, but we're going to deal with it. But I'm going to sort of touch on love. First of all, you read in... The scripture, a very clear word in 1 John 4, 16, that God is love. Now, well, I knew that. Well, think about it. God, God's essence, God's totality with all his other attributes is totally complete, pure love. And that scripture in 1 John says, if we love God, therefore God loves us. And there's that love relationship between you and I to God, and God's love is unending. You can't do anything, say anything, to get away from the totality of God because God's essence is love. You and I, as we abide in God, that means take up residence in godly understanding, then we have the capacity to love. Some people have a tough time loving sacrificially and with that big pregnant agape type of love because we don't realize that God loves us unconditionally. And therefore, we have not experienced sometimes love in our family, love in relationships, and therefore, we do not, we're not able to powerfully to give off love. You see, because I have been loved and the proportion by which I understand God has loved me and I have been loved by others, then I have love in me and I can give off love. And love is not a feeling. To God, love is a noun. He is love. But to you and I, love is a verb. 
It's unmuted somebody. Well, I fell in love and I can fall out of love. Nonsense. You are a sinner and you married a sinner and there'll be sin in the relationship and we can't escape it. We can be forgiven from it. We fell in love in a fallen world that has already fallen. So we're talking about this fabulous relationship and we take a vow to love. Have you ever said, well, I can't help how I feel. Let me give you a little wake-up call about feelings. Feelings are not good, and they're not bad. Feelings are not moral, or feelings are not immoral. It is true that we can help how we feel, but a lot of people use feelings as an excuse for lust, as an excuse for how we relate to somebody. You know, well, I can't help how I feel. And that brings you into two big, old, broad, philosophical areas. Don't get lost in it. You say, I can't help how I feel. In one sense, you can't, but feelings cannot be determinative of what we do. It doesn't work like that. Uh, there, there's a whole school of thought called stoicism, need to know that word. It means I don't recognize feelings. I try to stomp down any emotions I have. I don't want to live on the basis of emotion. I'm just going to be sterile and static and cold and not recognize any feelings. Just deny them. That's Immanuel Kant if you're a philosopher. Stomp out feelings, stomp out emotion. Don't let the heart rule. Don't deal with that. That's one extreme. The other extreme, I can't help how I feel. Therefore, I act on the basis of how I feel. And that is Rousseau. That is as stupid as trying to kill feelings as to say, I'm going to respond because how I feel. Ladies and gentlemen, I've got a news flash for some people. You know what it is? Feelings do not determine our action. Our actions come through our free will and our reason. We don't just live on the basis of our heart. There is the mind and the reason that superintends and controls our feelings. You got it? It's a little whiny thing. I can't help how I feel. Feelings are not moral. They're not immoral. They're not right. They're not wrong. Now, we do something that is right and good. We have good feelings, and it follows with happiness. If we do something that is wrong and unseemly, we have guilt that it comes, which leads to unhappiness. But feelings do not control. We cannot help how we feel, but how we respond comes through our free will and our reason. So you have to have the heart and the head. You have to have both. It's not either or, it's both and. So don't say to anybody, oh, I can't help how I feel. I act on the basis of how I feel. I've heard that so much in marriage conflicts. You don't really fall in love and you don't really fall out of love. And when we're married, we take those vows, not just to our partner, our spouse, our mate, but to Almighty God because vows are made to God. 
This is getting heavy, isn't it? But it is so real and so practical. Now, we love to say, well, I just love everybody. You know, oh, I just love, I'm just a lover. I love everybody. But you know, in the Bible, you find that God loves the world, and there is a universal understanding of love that certainly we need to be a part of, but yet love really effectively administered or operating in your life and my life is very personal. It begins very small. God loved Abram, right? Know your Bible? And he said, Abram, I'm going to make out of you a great nation. Couldn't God have loved a lot more people beside Abraham? No, he just started off with old Abraham. And out of Abraham, he made a nation, but it was a small, insignificant nation of Israelites, of Jews in the backside of nowhere as far as public uh, the world is concerned. But God took that small nation and loved it uniquely, trying to build into them through progressive revelation what life is all about and the meaning of life. He loved that little small nation. And then he sent his son into the world, fulfilling prophecy in that small nation. And Jesus primarily poured himself into just a little group of guys, didn't he? A little group of, you know, not those who were most likely to succeed, by the way, succeed. Uh-uh, it's a little group of nobodies. He poured himself into them with his love. Couldn't he have loved more people? <laughs> Couldn't he have had other plans? No. He just poured himself into those men. And what happened? Those men in their lives, their love explained who Jesus was to the world, blew up the whole world. See, the most important thing we can do right now, probably, probably the most important thing we can do personally, individually, is to love our mate to love our wife and our husband as God in Christ has loved us. Well, that seems so small. It's not really small. Love is not a river that's surrounded by banks where a man loves a woman and a woman loves a man as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. In that intimacy of married love, that love flows outside the banks and that love begins to flood and grow. And therefore, because in our marriage relationship, we have such a love relationship with God in Christ and with our wife or our husband. Now, everywhere we go in the world, we have the capacity to love. Love is small, intimate, and then it becomes a forest fire. Then it begins to spread everywhere. And we can only be effective in your job, in your vocation, in relationships, as we have loved our wife, now we have an explosive love. You see how God works. So, we have a vow to truth, marriage. We have a vow to love, marriage. And we have a vow to something else. TLC. And that C is cherish. You have to cherish that person. What does it mean to cherish? It's to give high value. To cherish someone means that you 
support, you encourage, you cheer, you, you let them know that they are of the highest importance in your human life. They are way up there, and they can do nothing or say nothing that will violate the fact that you have made a vow to truth and to love and to cherish and to honor them. <laughs> this is pretty heavy, isn't it? And you see what love is by definition. For better, for worse, things can get better. Things can get worse. You can be rich, have enough to live on, or you can be poor. You can be sick, you can be healthy. You say, well, I didn't buy this. Yes, we did. Those are the extremities, and that defines in the marriage vow what it means to love. Better or for worse. Rich or poor. Rich, we have enough to live on. Poor, we don't have enough to live on. I've been there both times. In sickness, I know about that. I know about health. I've been there. So sometimes it's better, sometimes it's worse, but in all of it, we are loved by God, enhanced by God, forgiven by God, and all of a sudden, that's a little miniature definition of love. Is it not in marriage? Isn't it? We said in our vows. Then it says to cherish. That's the last part of it. That's the fun part. That's the thrilling part. You learn, as Gary Chapman said in his book, you learn the love language of your mate. Hey, do you know the love language of your mate? I see some people don't have a clue. Uh, we have different love languages. You, you discover that. You discover that. And, and you speak out in that context. Now, we're going to have a large marriage ceremony here today. Some of you know it. Some of you didn't know it. But this is a chance for many to restate their vows with new understanding. Or it's a chance for some maybe here who this can be a legitimate service of marriage. Yes. And you can bring me the papers and I will sign them if you do this in sincerity before God and these are simple witnesses. And if you're single, Great, you get to participate in a fabulous commitment service. Now with a new understanding of marriage, I could go around to some of the men here and say, do you get this? When you were married, they'd be like, no, I didn't get all that. But now we get it. So this will be a more significant time. And those who will not participate will be a part of a significant time of commitment. So. If you're ready to restate your vows or maybe to say them and your wife or your husband is with you, would the man and the wife please stand up? Yeah, isn't that great? Oh, congratulations. Now, you can say, you cannot say, boy, I didn't understand all this. Now you do. What these vows are all about. And so we are going to repeat these vows. And you usually have a wedding rehearsal, right? Yeah, yeah. And you go to rehearsal, you try to get everybody to respond. We're going to have sort of a giant little rehearsal here. So we're going to start. By the way, last night, I just did 
the commitment the men made. I forgot you ladies make a commitment. I'm sorry. And those that were here last night are half married. <laughs> but you're going to get the full, full commitment thing here because we understand it. And I would say, I, Edwin, take thee, Lisa, to my ready wife to have and to hold from this day forward. And I would ask you to repeat that after me, and then we'll repeat the vows as we go forward. So would you turn and face your husband, your wife, hold hands, and look at them. Don't look at me. Look at them. No early kissing there, please, Ed and Ina. You're not even near about there. Just hang in there. We've got some people that, you know, they have problems here. Now, now, let me say, I want you to say your husband's name, your wife's name. First of all, we're going to talk the men. Are to, look at your wife. You're going to repeat the vows and follow me, and you say, I, your name, first name, take thee, your wife's name, and then I'll lead us through it as the men will make these vows to their wife. Okay, here we go. I, Edwin, Ben, that's the most anemic thing I've ever seen. It's your name. Here we go. Here we go. I, Edwin, say your name, take thee to be my wedded wife. Now, gentlemen, speak up. She couldn't even hear you. To be my wedded wife. To have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love, to cherish, till death do us part, according to God's holy gift. Good. Now, ladies, show them how this works now, if you would. Now, this is for the wife. I, see how much better than this, take thee to be my wedded husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love, to cherish, Till death do us part, according to God's holy gift. Oh, that's great. Now, if you can and you have your rings, take your ring off if you would. A, a man here last night just about broke his finger trying to get his ring off. <laughs> Let me show you something about the ring. Look up here for a minute that you may not know. In the early church, at a marriage ceremony, the, the the bride and the groom would have their ring on the middle finger. And therefore, when they would have the wedding ceremony, they would say, I know God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit has been a part of this. And then they would put on the, on the fourth finger of that hand. So, men, you need to have your wife, wife's ring. Your wife, you need to have your husband's ring right now. If you can, if not, you can simulate this. Simulation means go through it as if you did have a ring, okay? Now, look at your bait. First of all, to the men, do you give this ring to your wife as a token of your love for her? The answer is I do. 
By the way, when you give rehearsal, when you give, you say, I do. When you receive, you say, I will. Now, I go over this with a lot of marriages, and I get about 50% understanding. When I ask, do you, you answer, I do. When I say, will, you answer, I will. Let's try it again. Here we go, gentlemen. Do you give this ring to your wife as a token of your love for her? It's, I do. <laughs> Wives, will you receive this ring and wear it as a symbol of the token of your husband's love for you? Good. See how, guys, it's easy. Now, let's go the other way. And now, ladies, you take your husband's ring or simulate it. Do you give this ring to your husband as a token of your love for him? Will you receive this ring, wear it as a symbol, as a token of your wife's love for you? I will. Good, good. Thus, by the authority vested in me, by the laws of the state of Texas, and looking to God Almighty for divine sanction, I reestablish your vows, your marriage, before all these people and before Almighty God himself. Now, gentlemen, you may kiss the bride. <laughs> hey, hey. You may be seated. Now, you may have thought you were married before. <laughs> now, you are really married, right? You're really married. A recommitment and some a first commitment to the most magnificent relationship God has given us as human beings. He defined it. He gave us this intimacy that is there. In 2015, a beautiful young lady was crowned Miss Thailand. Gary Thomas tells us about this in his book on cherishing. And she was radiant. I mean, tall, brilliant, gracious, humble, beautiful, striking. Miss Thailand. And when she received the award, they put a tiara on her head, a crown, and everybody was just, wow, she's got everything. But she left the ceremony, and she went looking for her mother. Here's Miss Thailand. And she goes, and she finds her mother before a garbage dump. And she goes and bows down before her mother, flatter her face, the picture is taken. The picture is taken because you see her mother had a one family home. She was the only one who provided for her children, including now Miss Thailand. And she was a garbage picker. She went in all over and got trash and would resell the trash is how she had enough money to maintain that family. And now her daughter goes and 
this triumphant moment and just bows down before her and cherishes her. The picture that was taken went all over the internet. It went all over Asia. And all of a sudden, when this mother who went to work dirty with trash on her every single day to pick out garbage that she could resell to others, became in herself famous. And people would see and recognize this mom. What a powerful thing. The fact that her daughter cherished her, now she had a semblance of notoriety and, and fame, but she didn't take any other offers. She said, no, I provided for my kids selling trash, and I'm going to keep on selling trash. But now she recognized by people, famous throughout Asia, because this beautiful daughter had so cherished her. Let me tell you something, folks. God, our Father in heaven, so cherished you and me in that we still have hypocrisy and trash all over us. He sent his son all the way down to this world to take care of that trash and garbage, to cherish, to demonstrate how much he loved us so you and I can be cleansed. That's what happens. I'll tell you a secret. I shouldn't tell you this. I can be with a couple just for a little while, and I can tell you in a New York minute whether or not he cherishes her and she cherishes him. It's so obvious.